Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I'm here with my co-host, Andy Shirk, and this is a production of Anne, the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. Check them out if you haven't already. Great resource with lots of information. Um, again, we are so happy to have you with us. We love uh, attempting at least to answer your questions, and we want to keep hearing from you. So please don't forget to uh, send us your questions. Go to nonprofiteverything.com or just poke Andy and I when you see us, and we'll do our best to make sure your question's included. Our executive director is dating one of our board members. I know this doesn't fit neatly in one of the categories that would require some kind of disclosure, but it's making me a little uncomfortable about executive compensation and other kinds of conflicts of interest. Should we do anything as a board to protect ourselves? Yeah, I think I think you have a right to be have some concerns around this, right? Just like we have nepotism policies for in the workplace. Um, there's something that probably needs to be addressed. I mean, what I would recommend for the board to do is perhaps perhaps it's if there is a governance committee or an executive committee and this has been brought to light, um, there is a discussion about, at, you know, is this something that's allowable or not? Um, and, you know, and it could be just as much as perhaps that board member needs to um, – you know, step off the board for for the time being um, if people feel like there is too big a conflict. I mean, I'd love your thoughts, Andy, because I go back and forth with this and think, okay, the board works as a governing body, right? So it's not one person shouldn't influence all of that. And yet one person, as we all know, could influence things. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, my, my sh- short answer to it is I think that you don't want to just like ostracize or pick on that one person, but I think it's room for a larger conversation and perhaps without that person, I mean, that person shouldn't be a part of it, but a, a, a committee conversation about do we set a policy around this? It's not even a direct conflict of interest at this point, but it's almost a conflict of loyalty. Like who is this, who is, who is this board member going to, is there, are they going to be able to keep the organization's interest above their their relationships interests and I think just to keep it cleaner I, I mean I'd advise sort of maybe the person steps off of the board while this relationship is happening because also imagine if they break up or something I mean it's just it's there is room for so many <laughs> so like drama. human dynamics and drama oh. with this I don't know that's that's my thought what is it what is yours that's interesting. I think it's interesting that you're taking the hard line because that's not what I would have expected um, yeah. and I I think I'm on the other side okay. which is there really isn't anything you can do about it. I mean, you you could, I guess, you could have your board could come, you know, get together. Imagine that board meeting, how uncomfortable that would be. It's yeah. like, so Larry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we have to talk about something. We noticed, you know, going to that conversation is going to be really uncomfortable for all the board members. But then I think how many boards I've been involved with where some of the board members are best friends with the executive director. Like the reason that person's on the board is because they're the best friend of the executive director. And so that person always has their back. They're, you know, they're probably looking for the best interest of the organization, but, you know, maybe 51% of the time they're actually looking out for the best interest of the 
executive director. I'm imagining like a founder situation yes, too, yes. right? Where the founders brought on some people. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a sticky situation. And, um, you know, the solution is probably somewhere in the bylaws about what, what the board feels comfortable with in terms of making sure that the organization is keeping the mission first, that the board is thinking about the mission of the organization first and not about individual people. But I, like in my experience, I don't think I've ever seen that happen. Well, yeah, no, I've never seen, A, I've never seen that in bylaws and B, I just know things get, things get sticky, right? Like I just think things can get sticky and I mean, you can't avoid stickiness altogether, but I feel like the conversation, maybe it's not like at a board meeting. That's why I'm thinking maybe it's a small task force that's just as we need to look at some of our conflict of interest policies and that because it's also kind of a larger conversation. Does the organization, this leads me to, are there nepotism policies or guidelines within the organization? Like, I think it raises a lot of questions that maybe could be not just, you know, directed at this particular situation, but in general that the organization should think about, like, when is it acceptable or when is it not? Or is is it okay as long as you feel like everyone's got the mission first? But I feel like it is an awkward conversation, but I feel like it almost has to be had because that's where, right, the last thing you want is, I don't know, it's it to start seeming like this is okay, like, these kinds of situations are okay all the time. Like even on a staff, like to me, I also go sort of, this is a role model for the staff. And so then if the staff, you know, sit there and are like, oh yeah, so we can, I can go date, you know, my executive director or I can do whatever, like, or just, my direct supervisor. So it would be gross. be gross. It would be gross. <laughs> I don't know. Like, so for me, I'm just struggling with the fact that I don't think it's a neat, a nice, neat answer where you can put it in a box. Um, well, there, you know what there might be. So I think you're you're getting to something. So yeah. the the in in like a staff level, like one of the rules that you put in place for a staff level is that like it's okay to have workplace relationships as long as there's no line of authority between you and the person right. that you're having a relationship with. So if somebody's in one, if somebody's in development and this person is in programs and they want to date, okay, that's fine Absolutely. as long as they're not supervising each other. It, if you apply that and you apply that also yes. to the board, that then applies the same way because technically the board is supervising the executive director, which means that that's not allowed. Exactly. So, so if you've got a if you've got a nepotism policy for the staff that applies, yes. it's easy enough to just apply that same thing to the. To it the is, board. and then I started like I'm sitting here wrestling in my head, thinking perhaps it's also. Is it okay if the person's not an officer, right? Or like, you know, but it's just in kind of a, a board member, just not with any other authority, but is just on the board. Is that more acceptable than if it were, for example, a board chair and the executive director or a board treasurer and the executive director? I, I mean, it leads to, there's a lot of wiggle room here. And I almost think just a clear cut, like you said, of a nepotism policy that just applies as well for the board. I mean, well, I can think of, but here's, here's the challenge though. I can think of off the top of my head, three boards that I know of where the a husband and wife team, the one of the two of them is the executive director and the other one is on the board. Yeah. I can think of that in several situations and, and apparently it's not a problem yeah. for those boards. Yeah. I, I think it Ugh. definitely could be because you have to think, you know, is this person's and, and this, so I guess, I guess the, what I would recommend there is if this situation exists in a board that you're on, evaluate rather whether or not you want to be on that board still. Right. Because you're either going to have to, you know, fight a battle that's going to be ugly. <laughs> and uncomfortable. Uncomfortable, yep. you know. So is, is, is the organization important enough to you to make some enemies and to <laughs> leave to a little bit of. To raise some issues. Yeah, <laughs> raise some issues and leave a little burned ground. 
you know, or maybe you need to find another board that does similar work that and you know what? <laughs> is less, less I know tacky. I'm being Pollyanna here. This is complete Pollyanna, what I'm about to say. But what I wish is that people, don't you think if you were on a board and you started having a relationship with the executive director, I mean, what I would hope people would start to the ED and the board member would be able to say, all right, this is probably a good time for you to get off of the board. I mean, you know what I mean? If we've gotten serious enough that we're going public, that this is a relationship. Like I wish, and that's probably Pollyanna of me, but I just feel like people, I think I would do that. I mean, there's no way I would sit there and be like, hey, I don't want everyone uncomfortable with me in this relationship. I mean, it's awkward. It's super awkward. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think we answered this one. I I don't think think so. So sorry. Yeah, we just probably did make it worse. Ask us again next time. Maybe we'll we'll say something different. (laughs) Jeez. Our board wasn't happy with last year's annual report, so we're looking to change it up this year. Given information overload these days, do we even need an annual report? If so, what's important to put in it, and what do grantors want to see in it? So you need some way to communicate what you're doing as an organization, right, beyond, you know, the 990. But I don't think you have to define it as an annual report. I think you need to look at sort of your marketing or your communications portfolio and See, are you finding a way to update people, let them know maybe a year in review? I've seen some people do it as simple as a letter, you know, or just kind of a quick recap. Um, So I think the short answer is it doesn't have to, quote, be an annual report. Um, I do think there's cool opportunity, though, to share that's it's another way to share share what you're doing and the impact you're making. So what I've seen um, and I collect these because I'm a nerd about this stuff and I love good examples of it. So. There are a couple of organizations that have actually gone to more of like an oversized postcard annual report. So it's not like this labor intensive, you know, 20 page document no one's going to read that cost a fortune to make. They do like this oversized postcard and literally on it is everything from like there might be one or two quotes or testimonials from clients. There's sort of the quick financial recap, revenue expenses, and here's the breakdown of how we spent our money in like a pie chart sort of thing. And then there's... um a couple of feel-good pictures and like, here's how many lives we impacted last year, whatever your numbers are of what you're doing. I think that's the way, when you look at all the trends out there because of this information overload thing, I think that's the way to do it. Whether it's, you know, there's such a thing as virtual annual reports where people are doing it by video. There's some cool things you can do or just do your whole annual report by an awesome infographic. So I think it's an opportunity, another way to communicate with your audiences, to share it. But take the burden off and like make it less um, of a bear, like the, oh God, it's annual report time. And now we got to sunk, you know, sink a ton of time and money into it is my advice. Yeah. On that. Yeah. I was, you know, as a former CFO, I remember we would get the, like, here's the bid to do the annual report. And it's always a ridiculous oh, amount it's of money. Crazy. And my first thought was like, okay, what's the return on this? Exactly. Like, like, I think it's a, I mean, my opinion was it was an artifact of the pre-internet days where you would, that was the only way that you could actually disseminate your financial statements to your constituents. It is the only way you could tell you, the people that were interested in your mission, like what you actually achieved that year. Um, that's not the case anymore. All these stuff's on the website. Your, you know, your donor list is on the website. Um, Absolutely. Like, do your donors expect to have their name in some piece of printed material that gets mailed to their house? Or, I mean, what's the, I guess, you know, my, 
what's the point of it? Like, right. what, what are you trying to achieve? Figure right. out what you were trying to achieve and then and then do that. If it's an annual report, great. If there's some reason that you want to sum up the year and provide something glossy and pretty back to your donors because you think it's going to do something specific for you, totally do it. But there's no requirement for it. Not there, anymore. There are some great examples that if anyone wants to check them out, if you go to, I think it's nonprofitmarketingguide.com, and you literally like search in there and just put annual reports. They have some phenomenal examples of like, one to two page annual report formats or like an infographic format, some things that might spur ideas if you have somebody who really wants to do it. But, um, and I think from a grantor standpoint, it's the same thing you would put, like whether it's your website or somewhere else, right? But it's sort of like, you know, what money do we bring in? What money do we spend? What do we spend it on? Um, what was our impact? I mean, sort of just some, that same stuff, but does it have to be communicated in an annual report? Like you said, no. I mean, so it's like figure out what works. Yeah. Um, I mean, it might be a good question for like a development pro too to tell us like, is there a good development reason for providing something glossy at the end of the year? Does that, do you see a bump from that? Is that like, is like a direct mail thing that you have to do? And is it just another touch point, right? When you think about like development, people always looking at, we should have this many sort of touch points with our donors in between each thing. Maybe, maybe that serves that purpose as part of it, but and God, don't get me started about listing donor names because any development person listening to this is probably cringing. It's like you want to recognize them, but you so start to run the risk of you misspell their name, that one person's <laughs> name, right? And yep. you hear about that for the rest of history. So, yep. uh, yeah, you, you just got to think about some of it. Yeah. yeah. And, and the rest of us use those as prospect lists. Absolutely, <laughs> right? <laughs> Thank Ooh, you. <laughs> let's look at their donors. Oh, my gosh. Look at that. Oh, my gosh. That's a lot of money. We should, we should make sure that they're receiving our materials, too. Yeah. I, I've also seen people do, you know, one final thought on this is I've seen people do something creative where they'll send out a letter like that's sort of like a a recap letter, but says, if you want more details about what impact we made and what impact your donation made last year, please visit our website and, you know, direct link. And there's a page on the website that's almost like it's like an annual report, but it doesn't get printed and it's on the website. And in today's day and age, that's where everyone's looking for stuff. So, you know, cut, cut the costs. We are so excited to have our special guest with us, Clay Buck. I have known Clay for years and consider him a dear friend and one of the best fundraising professionals in our community. So uh, Clay is a a wizard and knows much more than I do. So that's uh, one of the reasons we wanted to bring him in for this question. So welcome, Clay. Wow, Stacy, thank you. That was very kind, uh, kind of you to say uh, uh, from from the person that I call for help uh, on a frequent basis. Uh, thank you. Happy to be here. I'm excited about this conversation. So let's get started because people might want to know a little bit about your background. Share sure. everything and anything you do. <laughs> well, that will take the whole podcast. Um, no. Uh, so I'm originally from Atlanta. I moved to Vegas in 2002 uh, to work for the uh, uh, fundraising consulting firm IDC. Uh, so I've spent about half my career in um, frontline fundraising and, and the other half uh, as a consultant. So uh, I was at the Smith Center here in Las Vegas. I'm now the chief development officer at Boys and Girls Clubs of Southern Nevada. And um, I am uh, at the tail end of my tenure as the president of the Association of Fundraising Professionals Las Vegas chapter. So 
I I need a life to do other (laughs) things than fundraising, but um, I enjoy it. And I just am always thrilled to work with um, the the amazing donors and uh, nonprofit community that we have uh, here in Southern Nevada. Well, I know they feel the same about you, and thank you for your service to AFP. I know that's a big a big feat, so thank you for that, and uh, we're going to miss you, but we know it's in good hands moving forward as well. So Absolutely true. Absolutely correct. All right. Well, so let's get into the meat of this. Uh, so we got a couple questions all tied to the same thing that I know that uh, you probably have some opinions on and some uh, knowledge <laughs> on. So um, let's get started. One of them is... How long should our year-end appeal letter be? One or two pages? Oh, boy. Um, so uh, there's a long answer and there's a short answer. It's, it, it, it's a phenomenal question. It's absolutely the right question. Um, I love the question. So short answer. A short answer, it should be two pages or more. Um, longer answer. The, the appeal letter is as long as it needs to be in order to do multiple things. And the main thing a letter needs to do, whether, and, and, you know, I'm talking very traditional direct response or, or, you know, mail letter here. Um, (laughs) it, 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 the main thing it needs to do is it needs to tell the story of, of your case and your nonprofit, and it needs to tell people how they can be engaged, and it needs to, to needs to make a direct call to action. Um, too often, I think we try to shortchange the the real estate in the letter, and we also there are a lot of techniques that we know work um, that that yield higher results when when we follow them. For example, a longer letter will always generate a higher response than a shorter letter than a shorter letter will um, so there's uh, boy it, there's no there's no set rule right like two pages isn't isn't the magic it's the magic is as long as the letter needs to be to accomplish those key goals you've also got to factor in the techniques in the letter that we know work and what resonates with donors and what that context is right so you know, when you when you when you talk to experts in the field, and we look at the data and the research that we have, when we're talking about a two-page letter, we're talking about very wide margins with lots of white space and a 14-point font, and you know, a fourth or fifth-grade readability level with very short paragraphs and very short sentences. So, it, it, it's not about necessarily the real estate of the letter itself. It's about all of those techniques working together to accomplish that goal of telling the story and and making the call to action in, in an urgent and actionable uh, kind of way that gets people to respond. Well, I love, first of all, thank you for sharing that because I'm sure uh, some of our listeners have probably had, whether it is people within their, uh, you know, fellow coworkers or board members that say shorter is better, right? Right, get right. On, uh, you know, the fact that we as a society have small attention spans. And so that sort of translates, I think, to this direct response. People seem to think shorter is better. But from what you're saying, that's not necessarily the case. No, it's not necessarily the case. And here's the best, here's the absolute best thing a fundraiser can hear um, from somebody who says that letter is too long. I wouldn't read it. 
right? And I we get that every single time we do yeah. any, really any, any content. Yeah. And the response to that is, good, you're not my target audience. Yeah. A person who's already uh, affiliated with a nonprofit, who already knows the story, who's already engaged, no, they're not going to read a letter, and you're not my audience. My audience is the people that don't know the story. My audience is the people that aren't committed to giving yet. The audience is the people that n- still need to be persuaded, right? So, good, you wouldn't read it. Excellent, great, because I don't need you to read it. <laughs> I need my next-door neighbor to read it, number one. Yeah. Number two, the best advice that I can give to any fundraiser is – Get into the knowledge that we have, and, and I'm talking about you know, the, the amount of research and data and information that we have, you know, the work that Tom Ahern is doing, or Lisa Sargent, or Mal Warwick, or any of these great folks that are out doing direct response in the fundraising space. We know, you know, a two-page letter, a longer letter, we just know it it performs better than a short letter. So when you're in that situation of a board or a committee chair or somebody saying, this letter is too long, nobody would read it, nobody's going to give to it, you're armed with data to come back and say, thanks, appreciate your input, here's the data that says it will, <laughs> right? This is what science tells us. Yep, yep. So, you know, knowing that research and really getting ingrained in it is really helpful to the, the fundraiser and the nonprofit leader to have at their beck and call when they need it. Well, I love that. I, and I love that because sometimes, sadly, as much as we are all professionals in our field, sometimes uh, you need an outside voice and you need that research and that data-backed, you know, um, system of what's worked. So I love that you, you mentioned some of those resources. So is that as this is, all just Google, yeah. Googling those names or? Yeah, Google it. I mean, yeah. and, you know, the, the data is out there. The information is out there. It's available through the AFP uh, website, afpglobal.com or through uh, a, either afplasvegas.org or the Sierra chapters uh, site in Northern Nevada. All will take you to those resources uh, as well. It's out there, right? It's out there and, and lean on it. And that's the thing. We're, we're fundraising now in a world of science. We know what works. What we've got to add is the heart and the soul to it, but we know, right? Better data, longer letters, all of those techniques really, really work. And it's so helpful for the fundraiser to have that to lean on and say, it's not just me. It's, you know, these experts over here are saying it. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. So, you know, you talked about, gosh, you know, white space, 14-point font, you know, making sure it's visually appealing. And I think those are all great tips for people who, you know, haven't maybe done this before or just getting started. Um, what about, you know, does it, what, our, our uh, listener who wrote in about this said, how important do you think it is to send a hard copy letter versus um, an email? Critical. Absolutely critical. Um, direct mail, direct response, traditional mail will always outperform digital. It, and again, we've got data, we've got statistics on it. We, we know this to be true, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely have to be in, in the mail as well. Now, right? Longer answer and caveats to that and, you know, situational, um, situational ethics and all of those things involved because there's a lot of context to that as well. Um, it, digital just will not perform in, in an acquisition world. Acquisition, acquiring new donors, we've got to be in the mail. It is still the best format. I started direct response. The first campaign I did was in 1991, maybe 92, right? And it's still 
26 years later, it is still the best way to do it. But what we're talking about in 2018 and heading into 2019 is that integrated multi-channel because what we see with donors is what we what I call channel hopping, right? So we send them a direct mail piece and they give online. So we think, oh, they're a digital person. We'll only solicit them via email. So we put them into email-only channels and then they send us a gift by mail. We have to be giving donors and prospects multiple channels and multiple venues for accessing us because this is how we all live now. Now, then, you know, you'll you'll get that response of, well, I never give by mail. No, you don't, but 70-year-old widows and retirees do. So, right, if we're hitting all audiences and we're all and we're hitting all channels, being out in every and as many as we can do and do well is really critically important both to engaging our donors and retaining them you know, for years to come. Well, and I know I can speak from experience. First of all, it's I, I don't know about you, I get so giddy when I get actually a piece of mail that looks like a, a letter or a card because, you know, the rest is junk mail or um, whatever it is that, that I don't want. And then emails, we all know we're saturated. So you get that nice little card or that you know, that note or that envelope that's a different color that, that makes you sort of want to open it and you're excited to open it and then you read it and what's the first thing so many of us do? I mean, I know I do this. I don't, I don't go to my checkbook, but I go online to check out their website and then maybe make that online gift. So I love the Precisely. idea of multiple channels. Yeah. Precisely. But then you also get the flip side of that. And I, I want to say, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you and Andy talked about donor-advised donor funds yes. um, in a previous podcast. You, yes. know, you, you get that too. People will get the email or they'll get the letter and then you know they go to their DAF to advise that fund, which comes in from a totally separate channel. Yeah. So, you know, and they need a hard copy of something to put in front of them in order to spark that, you know, release or, or, or indicator to the, the DAF to release the fund. So it's, yeah, it's, it's multiple streams. And the, the two things that when we talk about both length of a letter and what the format should be, um, as well as the, the channel, whether digital or, or um, regular mail. Yeah. I, I, I have to say, it. <laughs> um, every communication stream that we do in fundraising is a dialogue with donors. This is what we're trying to do, right? We're, we're trying to replicate in every way we approach a prospect or a donor, we're trying to replicate the face-to-face -face conversation. That is the best way to raise money, is to get in front of a person and have a conversation, right? We can't do that with 10, 20,000, even 1,000 people. So our, our communication streams are trying to replicate that experience. And what, so yes, you are right. We delight when something comes in the mail and it's addressed to us, right? And, and, and there we get to, we've got to emulate that conversation. So it needs to be personalized. It, it needs to reflect how we communicate. And if you, if you invite me to lunch and spend the entire lunch talking about yourself, Am I going to want to go on a second lunch with you? I don't think so, right? No. So, That's so, you know, all, all of those techniques, I know you train on this and teach this a lot, and I know um, Professionals in Philanthropy does with your uh, storytelling and all of that good stuff, right? Like, talking about you, it's the donor. I tell, tell me the story about me. It's my favorite story. Tell me how I can be a superhero, you know? So all of those things working together are really what drives success in, in all of that communication streams. 
Well, and I love the idea of, I love the, yeah, the storytelling piece that you, you drive home. And we always joke when we do our storytelling workshops about the use of the word you, right? And the power of the word you and your, and making someone feel like the hero and, um, and not doing it in a cheesy way, right? Doing it in an authentic way. But, but really bringing that to life um, and, and instead of making it, we're wonderful, right? We get the gold star because we're a fabulous nonprofit. We're the favorite charity, whatever it is. I mean, sorry, but, you know, the, that doesn't resonate with anyone and it just makes you sound arrogant. So I love that. I love your – Well, right. And, but, and think about it. I mean, even just, you know, an introduction, right? Say, I moved here in 2016 and I did this and I've raised this much money and I've done this. And, and you know, half, half the listeners tune out <laughs> because who wants to hear a whole bunch of numbers and statistics? I want to know who you are. Right. So authenticity is so important as part of all communication streams. And we, again, you know, what we know about neuroscience now, people respond emotionally. Don't, giving is an emotional reaction. It is not rational. And, and you know, unpack that for a second, because really what is rational about, I'm going to take money that I earned and give it away so that somebody else can go do something. It's, it's totally an emotional reaction. It's about how I see myself as a donor to, you know, XYZ organization. That's our job to light up in people is, you know, Stacey, you're amazing because you, you have really made a difference in Nevada and you're incredible, right? That's what gets people going. It does. Wow. Well, you, um, I love, I love listening to you because I always learn something new and you're a wealth of knowledge in this. Um, I'll tell you, everybody who's listening, I hope you took some good notes on this because it doesn't always mean you have to spend the, you know, bobs of money on direct response firm. You can take some of these at least, um, tips and tricks play gave and implement them immediately, which is great. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I think it's awesome. So are there any, um, closing words of wisdom you have to <laughs> we're working on that year-end appeal letter um, if you're working on your year-end appeal it is not too late you still have time get it out but but honestly if you, if you can't do it well right if you can't do it really well don't do it at all Absolutely. Mailing is, direct mail is expensive. Let, let's be really honest about that. And you already touched on it. It is expensive. And for, from an ROI perspective, it takes time. And you've got to be willing to invest in that time and expenditure of time and dollars for the long term. But in the end, it pays off in huge dividends. So do it, do it well, um, and do it with love. That's really what it's all about. Aw, that's a great way to end. Aw, right? You know what? <laughs> that feels wonderful. Now I just want to give you a hug, but, you know. Okay. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> Nobody else can see us do that, but just pretend that we're Clay and Stacy are there hugging. And with that, we hope we've left a smile on your face and some new wisdom that you can put to use. Thank you for uh, everyone for tuning in, and thanks, Clay, for uh, sharing all your knowledge with us. Absolutely, my pleasure. I appreciate you and Andy doing this. It's I listen to it every month. It's fantastic. Well, we love having a loyal listeners, and I got—I sort of got goosebumps when you started talking about our 
donor advice funds episode, I thought, wow, someone who actually listens. Very cool. So thank you. <laughs> hey, listen, it, you know, you, thanks, thanks for your good words about me. If you listen to anybody, listen to, listen to you talk about, you know, donor advice funds and all that good stuff. You are, you and Andy both are amazing. Well, well, it's a mutual fan club and uh, onwards and upwards. We're going to say goodbye now. So thanks, Clay. Thank you. Well, thank you. You have made it to the end successfully of another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Um, for Stacy, I'm Andy Schurich. Um, thank you so much for listening. Please check out the Ann webpage. See, there's a bunch of stuff coming up in the next couple of months. Um, please check that out and see if there's something that interests you. And uh, with that, we will see you in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.